Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. We continue our look into the letters that were written to the seven churches. As you remember from last week, this book is widely regarded to be written by the Apostle John while on the Ion of Patmos at around the year 90 A.D. This is a book of prophecy, yet it also contains important historical information. And John is writing to actual churches in his day. So this book is a mixture of both figurative and literal language, and it can sometimes be difficult to tell the difference between the two, which can make interpretation very, very difficult. But our focus isn't over the entire book of Revelation, but most specifically on these letters that were written to these churches that existed in John's day. What is said to these churches as just as real and relevant today as it was to the original audience some 2,000 years ago. Each of these messages, there will be somewhat of a consistent outline with just a few differences between them. And in this, you, will, you, you and I will likely find ourselves described in some form or fashion. Now, what is said in these letters to the churches can be true about an entire church. It can be true about a portion of the church. And it most certainly is going to be true about individuals that make up that local body of believers. So let's look together in Revelation chapter 2. Our focus this morning will be on verses 8 through 11. God's word says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear that what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, this letter to the church at Smyrna is the shortest of the letters that were written and contains only these four verses. So the first thing that we see in our outline is the messenger. Again, in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. Now Jesus is speaking to John, who records this message for us. And this message is given specifically to the angel, which by our understanding would be the pastor or the messenger. It would also include the elders or those that would be given leadership within the church. And this is something that every leader within the church needs to take great heed in listening to, is these words that come in each of these letters. Now, the description that Jesus uses about himself is going to tell us two things. His title is the first thing that we learn, and he calls himself the first and the last. Now, one commentator said this, there is depth here that cannot be plumbed, and that is absolutely correct. When Jesus talks about his being the first and the last, what it does primarily is it affirms his deity. It encompasses the entirety of who God is and the attributes that we would use to describe this person of God that we know. Now, just a sampling of these attributes. Letter A, he is eternal. There was nothing before him. There is nothing that will outlast him. God has always been, and he will always be. He is 
eternal. First Timothy 1.17 says this, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus uses these words about His being the first and the last to identify Himself as this immortal and eternal God. Now letter B, as we look at these attributes, not only is He eternal, but He is infinite. It means that God is beyond our description. He is beyond our understanding. If you were to possess an infinite infinite amount of something, it means you have more than could ever actually be counted. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus says this about himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. When Jesus calls himself the Almighty, he means exactly that. He is called calling himself to be equal with God. Let her see, he is also self-existent. That means that Jesus doesn't need anything to sustain himself or his life. You and I need to have a certain amount of water every day. We need to have a certain amount of nutrition every day. We need to have a certain amount of rest every day. But Jesus as God in his eternal, infinite state is in need of absolutely nothing. He is the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. And He holds life in Himself. John 5.26 Just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. He is the origin, the originator, the sustainer, and the giver of life. Letter D. He is sovereign. That means that Jesus rules Overall, there is none above him. There is none equal to him. He is the sovereign Lord. In his final words before his ascension, he said in Matthew 28:18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means exactly what it says. All means all. He doesn't share this authority with any other ruler, any other king. God in the person and the form of the Trinity is sovereign over absolutely everything. But not only is Jesus these four things that we've mentioned, He is omnipotent, He is omniscient, He is omnipresent, He is imminent, He is transcendent, He is perfect, He is righteous, He is glorious, He is majestic, He is holy, He is great. These words that we use to describe the person of God, these attributes of God, barely scratch the surface of all that is encompassed in his deity. So we learn about who he is in his title. The second thing that we learn here is about his work. He was dead and has come to life. Now think about this. This eternal, infinite, self-existent, sovereign Lord had a single purpose in mind when he left his rightful place in heaven and came to the earth that he created, his single plan was this, to complete the plan of redemption that was in the heart of God from eternity past. Now, in this description of his work, it affirms his victory. Jesus is victorious. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered over all rule, over all authority. We read this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 to 57. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on 
immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only has Christ been victorious in conquering sin and death, but in His power, in His sovereignty, He has given to us this same victory. As a result of His work and the victory that He provides, we have been given this same victory. He has rescued us. He has delivered us. He has forgiven us. He has redeemed us. He has justified us. We stand before this holy and righteous God sanctified. We have been glorified as we await our glorification. We have been made new spiritually. We are now called the children of God. This is an incredibly important message for all believers to hear, to know, and to understand. Much more for for those who are being persecuted for their faith, but also for us who don't really know a lot about persecution, but still endure incredibly difficult circumstances during our life in this world. We must always remember who God is. We must always remember what God has done for us through the finished work of the cross. We must always be reminded that we stand victorious in and through our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's good news for us to know, especially in the days that we now find ourselves in where there's great uncertainty. We don't know when we'll resume life that is normal as a result of the coronavirus. Schools are closed and businesses are closed and we're being asked to quarantine ourselves from one another. There's great uncertainty, but we can be absolutely positive of this. God is sovereign God is ruling, nothing has changed, and we stand safe and secure in our union with Jesus Christ. Now, we've learned about the messenger. Secondly, we see his commendation to this little church in Smyrna. Verse 9 reads this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, parentheses, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue. Of Satan. In this commendation that Jesus gives, there are three things that Jesus knows about this church. First of all, he knows their tribulation. Now, the word tribulation most literally means pressure. In this church in Smyrna, there is external pressure being placed upon it in such a way that it is bringing about to them great difficulty. It's a similar word that is used for persecution. It is often used for the word affliction, and it specifies the kind of distress that this individual church is experiencing. And as we learn from the context, this external pressure is not just the result of being in a fallen world, but it is an intentional pressure, a persecution that is being placed upon this church because of their faith in Christ. So not only does Jesus know about their tribulation, he also knows about their poverty. That word poverty means to be beggars, It means to be destitute. We know something about the poor in our country today, 
But there's something very different about being destitute, about being impoverished in this day and age that John is penning these words in. Most likely because of this faith in Christ that the church in Smyrna stood behind, they were being economically sanctioned within the community that they lived. Those who were Jewish looked down upon those who professed Christ. They saw those who professed Christ as rejectors of the Jewish religion. And because of that, they would punish them. They would not allow them to work. They would not allow them to buy goods from them. There was great economical hardship in first century Christianity in the midst of Jewish culture. It's also likely that they faced sanctions from Jewish worship. They were excluded from the temple. They were excluded to the parts of the Jewish religion that were still meaningful to them. Likely they met in home churches, but there was still something significant about going to the temple, that familiar customary form of worship that would remind them of who God is and how God has been made complete in their understanding and the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So yet... They deal with this incredible hardship in their lives, pressured externally because of their faith in Christ. And in this, Jesus says, you are rich. Now, what do you think he means by that? Obviously, he's not talking about material things or monetary things. He's talking about being rich and that which really matters, and it would be spiritual things. I'm reminded of Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You might be poor as dirt, but I want to promise you in heaven... You are rich. The great challenge for us is to appropriate spiritual riches in our life, even though we find ourselves in the midst of great difficulty, tribulation, and even persecution. We must remind ourselves that we are the chosen of God, that we have been adopted as His children. We have received grace and mercy, and forgiveness. We have been redeemed. We have been made new. And I think as long as we celebrate those realities in our life, our material lack is going to fade in comparison with how we have been blessed by God. Now, the third thing that Jesus knows, excuse me, the third thing in this in this commendation is this. They're being falsely accused. Jesus knows what it is they're going through, what it is they are experiencing. And in this, he uses the word blasphemy. That word blasphemy means false testimony. And this word is generally reserved for hostile words against God, those who would speak untruth, those who would claim things about God that weren't accurate. And when Jesus was living out his earthly ministry, he was often accused of being blasphemous because he considered himself to be equal with God. Now, he wasn't blasphemous, but that was the accusation that was brought against him. But here it is used about this church in Smyrna, and it indicates the slanderous wickedness and intensity and the severity that was being brought against this group of believers because of their faith in Christ. Now, there was a lot of misunderstanding about what it meant to be a Christian 
And the Jews didn't understand a lot of the spiritual truths that were practiced in that day and would be practiced in our own day. For example, because of a misunderstanding about the Lord's Supper, they were commonly accused of cannibalism because they claimed to eat the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of the instruction or because of the practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss, they were, they were accused of immorality within the church. Because of the conflict that can sometimes occur when one spouse becomes a believer and the other does not, they were accused of breaking up homes. Because they rejected the pantheon of religious gods of the day, they were accused of atheism. Because they refused to offer the required sacrifices to the emperor, they were accused of political disloyalty. So any opportunity... The Jews had to bring accusation against the believers in Smyrna. They would do it. Now, nobody enjoys being falsely accused. Have you ever had to endure false accusation in your life? Accused of doing something you didn't do, saying something you didn't say, taking something you didn't take. These kinds of accusations have the potential to ruin reputations and to bring about incredible hardship by those who give in to the rumor without ever validating the truth. These false accusations can be incredibly difficult when they are centered around the most important thing in your life. So I would imagine for this church in Smyrna, who took their faith in Christ incredibly real and were authentic and genuine believers to be accused of being something less or something else, brought about great difficulty in their lives. Now, this blasphemy that this church in Smyrna was experiencing was instigated by the same Jews who rejected Jesus and hated Jesus during his earthly ministry. The names and the faces may have changed, but the spirit was the same. They hated and rejected the person of Christ, and they were going to oppose and inflict their will on anybody that they could who is going to believe in Jesus as the Lord. So the implication is that these Jews were followers of Satan. They were of the Satan, uh, the synagogue of Satan. And just as those who worshipped the pagan gods of the day, they were worshippers of Satan. The accusation is that the Jews worshipped the same Satan that would be true of the pagan worship that was real in their day and in their age. That would be a hard thing for any Jew to hear or to consider that they were worshipers of Satan as opposed to God. But that is the reality of what Jesus says in this message as a part of this commendation that these who were bringing hardship against them were of the synagogue of Satan. And what you and I need to remember is that the real persecutor in our life and in our world is none other than Satan himself. All persecution against Christians is initiated by the true accuser, the great deceiver, and the all-time enemy of God, that is Satan himself. As we revisit Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, chapter 844, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of 
lies. Jesus said this to the Jews of his day. He's repeating the same sentiment in a part, as a part of this commendation to the Christian believers in Smyrna. Now, when Jesus was born, Satan used Herod as a pawn to bring about the death of thousands upon thousands of toddler boys in an attempt to eradicate this newborn king who had come into the world. Early in Jesus' ministry, the Jews were out to kill him because they opposed who he was and what he claimed. We read in John 5.18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, you and I know that eventually in Jesus' earthly ministry, he would be killed at the hands of these Jews who hated him, hated what he preached, hated what he stood for, hated the claims that he made. And we need to be reminded that Satan's agenda hasn't changed today. Just as Jesus was persecuted in his day, we will also be persecuted in our day. Jesus will warn us in John 15:20. Remember, the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. When you stand for Christ, when you stand for truth, when you oppose those who oppose Christ, you will be persecuted. Don't be surprised by that. Jesus told us this is what would happen. We don't need to be Surprised at that reality. John 16, verses 1 through 3. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus predicted the martyrdom of those who would stand for him. And it's a sad reality that in many countries today, there are Christians who are persecuted and actually stand for Christ in such a way that they give up their lives as opposed to denouncing Christ. Now, in our Western civilization today, we don't really know a lot about persecution. But there are countries all over this world who know it very, very well. And they will not back down. They will stand for Christ no matter the cost. Now, as you notice this commendation that we see, there is no rebuke that follows to this church at Smyrna. It's only one of the two churches that are written to that don't have any kind of rebuke. The reason is this. Persecution produces purity and holiness of those being persecuted. Now, the false Christian will run in the face of persecution, but the true believer is going to stand in the face of persecution, and the result of that persecution is going to be greater purity and greater holiness as they cling to Christ and denounce everything about the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise that we can take to the bank. We will be persecuted when we stand for Christ. Now, thirdly, in our outline, we see his encouragement. There is encouragement in the face of this great persecution. The first part of verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. So they're being persecuted, but apparently it's going to get worse. 
So there's some encouragement with that news. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. So there's four, th- four things that we learn as a part of this encouragement that Jesus gives to the church. The first thing is this. He knows. Jesus knows the persecution that we're going to face. He knows the tribulation, the distress, the hardship, the difficult circumstances. He knows it all. None of it catches him off guard. None of it is a surprise. He has always known as the omniscient God of everything that will ever happen to every individual who is ever born. He knows. So when we face these great difficulties and these great hardships in our lives, when we come to Him, we tell Him that which He already knows. And it ought to be an encouragement to us to be reminded that He knows what is going on. Now, in the face of what it is we are about to discover and what Jesus already knows, we are not to fear. As we think about the coronavirus in our culture today, our world is gripped with fear. There are people who are crippled by fear. They're afraid to go out of the house. They're afraid to go to the store to get their necessities. And so they're going and getting all the things they think they're going to need for an indeterminate amount of time. There is incredible amount of fear going on in our world today because there's great uncertainty. But in the face of this, we are reminded we are not to fear. Whether it be persecution, whether it be the hardships that we experience just as a part of life, we are not to fear. The psalmist, who is no stranger to external pressure, to persecution, to distress, would pen these words in Psalm 56:11, "In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me?" Well, you and I might answer that question and say, "Well, I know what man can do to me. He can make life harder. He can make my life more miserable. And in some parts of the world, he might even take my life. But you and I must be reminded of this. This life is not all there is to our existence. We are trapped by the temporary nature of our world. And when that is true, when that is our dominated perspective... We can fear what man might do to us. But we need to be reminded because of who God is, because of the victory that is ours as a result of our union with Christ, we don't need to fear what man can do to us. There is no exemption from being persecuted and then being able to be fearful. But there is an encouragement to stand firm. As opposed to being gripped by fear, we are to stand firm and the sovereignty of God, and the permanency of our union with Christ. So as we think about persecution and why God has allowed persecution to take place, Jesus knows that they will be tested. They have already been tested. They are in the process of being tested, and they are going to continue to be tested as they live faithfully for the Lord. James 1, 2 and 4, some of the strangest words we can read in the Bible. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, if we just pause there, we might go, well, why are we supposed to be filled with joy when we're being persecuted and distressed and potentially being gripped by fear? Well, James goes on to say, knowing that the testing of your faith 
produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Persecution brings about greater purity and greater holiness, and it brings about a greater faithfulness and a greater determination to stand firm for him. The fourth thing that we learn about this is that this persecution, this this hardship is temporary. Now, he says here that you will have tribulation for ten days, and this is where we don't know if this is a literal ten-day period or if ten days is figurative of a longer period of time. We really don't know, but it doesn't change the reality that our persecution, our hardship, is always considered temporary because our lives in this world is not what defines us. It is not the end all. It is simply a training ground for what we will eventually experience, and that is eternity with God in heaven. In the meantime, we're reminded in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, whether that's ten days or a longer period, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is a promise that God makes to us about what Jesus himself is going to do for us as we resist and as we stand firm. He will perfect us. He will confirm us. He will strengthen us. And he will establish us. Persecution is always to be cast against the backdrop of eternity, the person of Jesus Christ, and the permanency of our union with him. That ought to be incredibly comforting and encouraging to us to know that God is always there and he is always going to see us through. Now, we look at number four in our outline. We look at Jesus' instruction to this church, to all who would, incur, who would experience persecution in their life, the latter part of verse 10 says this, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The instruction is very, very simple. It is this, it is be faithful, and what I believe he means by that is to prove yourselves. Be reliable. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't back away. Remain faithful as you have been. Prove yourselves to be faithful to this God that you love. To what end are they instructed to be faithful? Well, to death. That's what Jesus says. Be faithful unto death. Now, some of them will be cast into prison, not all of them. It's possible that some of them will die in prison, but perhaps not all of them. But there is this expectation that the true believer, the one who is standing firm in Christ, will suffer persecution and be faithful unto death. It is the rare individual who is willing to face death for Christ. 
As I mentioned, it is a distinct reality in many parts of our world, but not in our world, not in the United States. We get concerned about what might happen if we, were, if we lose some of our religious liberties. But the reality is this, is that persecution does something to Christians that nothing else will do. It causes us to be reminded about that which is most important. It reminds us of the temporal nature of this life that we live and the world that we live in. It causes us to challenge that which we truly value in this world. We are to prove ourselves to be faithful unto death, regardless of the cost. And as we do that, we are to await our reward. And Jesus tells us what our reward is, and that is the crown of life. The crown of life speaks of our eternal life. You know, when you think about persecution, when you think about those who are willing to give their lives for Christ, would it surprise you to learn that in the areas of the world where the persecution is the most severe, Christianity is growing the fastest? Perhaps that explains why the growth of Christianity in the United States has plateaued, and it has been for some 20 or 30 years. One commentator told of the Eastern Bloc before the Iron Curtain was removed. There was no real picture of what the church might look like in Eastern Europe and even in the Soviet Union. But when the Iron Curtain fell, there was a picture of the church where there were faithful Christians who were loving the Lord and living for the Lord, who were living pure and holy lives, who were being martyred for their faith, but it was something the rest of the world was not aware of, but it was still true. As they stood in the face of death, they awaited their reward, which was eternity with Christ in heaven. James 1, verse 12 says this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, if we love the Lord, if we really and truly love the Lord, we will endure hardship and persecution. We will be faithful unto death. That is the expectation that is communicated in Scripture. 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that's the great hope that we have. That is what empowers us and enables us to stand in the face of of adversity and persecution is the eternity that awaits those of us who love the Lord and are willing to stand for him. Now, the last thing we see on our outline, number five, is we see his promise. Verse 11 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now before this promise is given, there is the the promise is preceded by a couple of things. First of all, there is an appeal. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And as we know from the Gospels, anytime Jesus would say this, it means this is incredibly important. We are to listen not with with our literal ears, 
but with our figurative ears, our spiritual ears, to take to heart the words that Jesus is saying. The second thing that precedes this promise is a reminder that this message is coming from Jesus himself. You'll notice in the scripture there, spirit is capitalized, and that means it is the Holy Spirit, it is the person of Christ in the form of the Holy Spirit who is speaking these things to John. Jesus is speaking, and we ought to listen to these words as such. Thirdly, this is coming to the churches. It is to this church and to all churches, and it is to he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And this is the promise that he who overcomes, which means all true believers, those true believers who will stay faithful to the end, they will avoid the second death, meaning that they will enjoy eternal life with God. They will be spared from eternal torment. Now, as difficult as persecution might be, as unwelcomed and as wanted as our distresses might be in this world, it's not anything compared to eternal torment where we are separated from the presence of God for all eternity and we go to the place that is reserved for those who rejected Christ, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, I almost didn't teach out of this passage because we in America are such strangers to persecution. But there's such a great message of promise and hope in these words as you and I face very difficult and very uncertain times. We don't welcome these things in our lives. There aren't many who look forward to being persecuted. There aren't many who are willing to be persecuted. But I wonder how many are willing to endure persecution while they joyfully await the reward of the crown of life. As hard as life can be, as uncertain as the times are that we live in, we can be assured of this, that God is there, God is in control, God has a plan and a purpose, and you and I, as born-again believers in Christ, rest securely in Him as a result of our union with Jesus Christ. I heard this many, many years ago, and it's worth repeating. When we're going through difficulty and hardship in our lives, we remember this. God has plans. We have Him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we have in your word. We thank you for the promises that you make to us as your children. We're thankful that we know that you know all that we're ever going to go through. And because of who you are, because of what you've done for us, we cannot be gripped by fear. But we can instead stand firmly in our faith in you. We pray, Father, that what we know about you would make the greatest difference in our lives during this time. We pray that you give us opportunity to share the hope that we have with those who have no hope, with those who are gripped by fear, with those who, can, who are concerned that the end of the world is around the corner. Father, we know that we live in temporary times. We know what awaits us as your children. Help us to find an opportunity to share that with those who aren't so sure and so desperately need to know. I pray that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word in such a way that you'd be honored and glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.